The way we conceive God to be determines how we behave. In Elijah's day, the king of Syria believed it possible to defeat the Israelites in the valley because he thought Israel's God was just a God of the hills. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we'll see how ineffective it is to try to limit the unlimited God revealed in the Bible. Well, Phil, today's message is titled, God Unlimited. Well, could we limit it perhaps a little bit or define what you mean by that? Well, Mark, today we have the story of a battle between the Israelites and the Syrians. And the king of Syria, a man named Ben-Hadad, has this idea that although the God of Israel is the God of the hills, he's not the God of the valleys. You see, he's trying to limit the scope of God's authority. But I wanted to say right from the title of today's message, God cannot be limited to some particular place. He is the God of the entire universe. So if you were to draw out the most important applications from today's message, what would they be? Well, Mark, I think there are lots of ways that we do sometimes limit God and particularly have a smaller view of his power and authority than is really warranted for a God who is unlimited. And we need to be reminded today as we hear the message of God's word that we serve a God who has unlimited power to deliver us from the penalty of our sins. A God who has unlimited power by the Holy Spirit to deliver us from the remnants of sin in our lives and unlimited power to help us in whatever time of need, whatever difficulty we're facing. We should not limit him, but see his unlimited power and grace. Okay, thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 20 and listen to God's word for us today. Now, 1 Kings chapter 20 is a hard chapter. I know it's a hard chapter because some of the books I have been using skip this chapter altogether. They simply pass from the call of Elisha at the end of chapter 19 to the story of Naboth's vineyard in chapter 21. But we do not skip chapters. We venture where some scholars fear to tread because preaching from the hard passages of Scripture is an act of faith. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, even 1 Kings 20. Now, because this chapter is unfamiliar to many of us, I want to begin by telling you its story. It is the story of two battles between Syria and Israel, between King Ben-Hadad of Aram and King Ahab of Israel. Well, the more things change, the more things stay the same. We can imagine war breaking out between Syria and Israel in our own times. Verses 1 through 12 describe all the threats and taunts that led up to the war between these two perennial rivals. Then in verses 13 to 21, we have the first battle, the Battle of Samaria. And again in verses 22 through 34, the second battle, the battle of Aphek, and the treaty which followed. And then finally in verses 35 to the end of the chapter, a prophecy of judgment against King Ahab for violating God's covenant. The beginning of the chapter, King Ben-Hadad holds the upper hand because his army is more numerous. 
We read in verse 1 that he mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots. He went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. And Hadad could sense that the battle was his to win, and so he sent an ultimatum to Ahab. This is verse 3, Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. You may remember that Ahab wasn't even master of his own household. And if he can't stand up to Queen Jezebel, how can he stand up to King Ben-Hadad? So he capitulates. He says in verse 4, Just as you say, my lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. Spoken like a true coward. Ahab was willing to become a lapdog to the Arameans. But he met their demands so quickly that Ben-Hadad decided to up the ante. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children, but about this time tomorrow I am going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. You can see that Ben-Hadad is picking a fight with Ahab. His commentary on this chapter, Ian Provan, points out that these new instructions are more intrusive, more extensive, and more immediate. Now Ben-Hadad is threatening to ransack Ahab's palace from room to room. He is going to confiscate his goods. He is going to take his family hostage, and he's going to do it all tomorrow within these next 24 hours. Such extortion was more than Ahab could bear. Coward though he was, he still had a shred of kingly dignity. And so, with the encouragement of his elders, he said, This demand I cannot meet. The trouble with bullies is that they get mad when they don't get their way. So Ben-Hadad makes one of the great military boasts of the Old Testament. It sounds like something you might hear from one of the brutes on the World Wrestling Federation. This is from verse 10. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. Do you get the picture? And Hadad has so many soldiers, and his victory will be so thorough that there won't even be enough dust left for him to give each of his soldiers a souvenir from the Holy Land. Well, King Ahab knows how to wage psychological warfare too. He sends Ben-Hadad a taunt of his own. He says, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. I suppose this is the ancient military version of don't count your chickens until they hatch. It is one thing to boast when you are putting on your helmet and shoulder pads in the locker room before the game. It is another thing to talk about all your exploits at the end of the fourth quarter. Well, Ben-Hadad got the message. He got it, as we read in verse 12, while he was having a few beers in his tent with his buddies. It made him so angry that there was nothing left for him to do but to settle things on the battlefield. The battle of Samaria begins in verse 13 with the promise that Israel will win the battle. A prophet came to Ahab and announced, Do you see this vast army 
I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. God promises that he, he that is to say, he, God, must win the battle. That is why Ahab uses such unusual tactics. The prophet tells him to let his fresh recruits lead his army into battle. The NIV calls them young officers, but they are really just youngsters or rookies. Ahab's only job will be to finish the battle. In verse 14, the New International Version has him asking, and who will start the battle? But the word he uses is really the word for mopping things up, for wrapping things up at the end of a battle. What the prophet tells Ahab to do sounds like terrible military strategy. He is telling him to throw his most inexperienced soldiers into the heat of battle and to hold his veterans back until the end. And of course, the reason the Lord does this is to show that the victory belongs to God and to God alone. And God did win this battle. We read in verse 16 that the Israelites caught Ben-Hadad sitting in the seat of mockers, carousing in his tent. In fact, Ben-Hadad sounds perhaps a little drunk in verse 18. If they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. Now, I suspect that what he really wanted to say was that if they have come out for war, take them dead or alive. It is not very easy to take an armed soldier alive in battle. Well, in any case, the Arameans suffered heavy losses and they were forced to flee. Ahab was right. One who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Well, so much for round one. The only problem was that Ben-Hadad managed to escape on horseback. So we read in the scriptures that he did what most football coaches do when the season ends in bitter defeat. He met with his coaching staff during the off-season to look for his opponent's weaknesses. And his officials thought that they had found the soft spot in Israel's defenses. This is what they say in verse 23, Their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Now, I suppose this scouting report partly had to do with military strategy. The Arameans had more chariots and more soldiers. That didn't help them that much in the mountains. They needed to fight down in the valley where they could take the home field advantage. But the advice of Ben-Hadad's officials also had spiritual implications. They did not believe in the living God. They were claiming that God has his limitations. They were claiming that the God of Israel is a God of the hills, but not of the plains. They were claiming that God is good for this, but not for that. God can do this, but he can't do that. Their attitude is captured in the title of a book by J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. That's what the Arameans had to say about the God of Israel. They believed that the God of Israel was everything that you ever wanted in a God, only less, only about half as much. Our own culture 
is dominated by belief in a limited deity. We have become children of a lesser God. Some try to limit God by saying that he is only a God of prosperity. Their God is a God for the good times, but not for the bad. He is a God of the ups, but not the downs. A God of the victorious life, but not a God of the cross. He seems close in the day of joy, but he vanishes in the day of suffering. Some limit God by saying that he is only a God of love. Their God is a God of mercy, but not a God of wrath. He is a God who forgives sins, but never punishes them. He offers compassion without justice. Some limit God by saying that religion is a private matter. Their God is a God for Sundays, but not for Mondays. He is a God to worship in the pew, but not a God to serve in the office. He is a God who lives in my heart, but he is not a God who rules over the nations of this world. Some limit God by saying that he is only a God for the life to come. They begin the Christian life by trusting in Christ for eternal salvation, but then they continue in the Christian life by their own strength. They are saved by grace, but they have not yet learned how to live by grace. I was sharing this passage with a friend earlier this week, and he said, that sounds exactly like what God has been trying to teach me these past several years. I know how to trust God for eternity. I just don't know how to trust him for my day. Isn't that what we find in the Christian life? Isn't that what we find in our culture? These are some of the lesser gods, some of the limited deities of our times. They are gods of the hills, but not gods of the valleys. You see, 1 Kings 20 is not just a story about a couple of ancient battles. It is an experiment with the idea of a limited God. The Arameans show us what happens when you take a limited view of God and then go out into battle to face God himself. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. Things did not look good for the Israelites. They were heavy underdogs. I suppose it was like the Eagles against the Niners in San Francisco, only much worse. The scripture says the Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The people of God were certainly outnumbered and probably overmatched. But the children of Israel did have this one thing going for them. They served an unlimited God. They were not children of a lesser God. They served a God who is unlimited in his might and power. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. This is the great spiritual lesson from 1 Kings 20. God is unlimited. He is not limited by geography. 
not limited in his power to save his people, not limited in his might to destroy his enemies. He is God of the hills as well as the valleys. He will deliver this vast army into the hands of his people, and then they will know that he is God. Now, this is something the people of God should have known already. Everyone who lived in Israel during the days of Elijah knew from personal experience that the God of Israel is the God of the hills. They had all ascended the heights of Mount Carmel to see the prophet of God confront the prophets of Baal. They had all seen fire come down from heaven. They had all knelt face first on the mountainside to testify that the Lord, he is God. And if they had listened to Elijah, they surely would have learned that God is God of the valleys as well as the hills. Back at the beginning of 1 Kings 17, Elijah went to hide in the Kareth ravine, and God was there. There God gave him food and water because he is the God of the valleys. The God of Elijah has no limitations. He is God unlimited. This is what we find all through the pages of Scripture. The true and living God is a God for this and for that. He is a God who can do this and he can do that. He is a God of the valleys and of the hills. A week ago I was lying sick in bed in Colorado, violently ill with the stomach flu. I was wondering how I would ever have the strength to preach the following morning. As I was doing so, I feebly got out of my bed and opened my shutters and collapsed back onto my bed. And as I gazed out on the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, I remembered the words of the psalmist. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. Then I tried to remember if the psalmist had anything to say about valleys. I recalled the words of Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. All the soldiers in the Lord's army know that God is with them on the hills and through the valleys. And the Arameans will know it too. They will learn firsthand that God is God of the valleys. We read in the scripture that for seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. This is verse 29. The Israelites inflicted a 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. What terror it must be to serve a lesser God, only to discover too late that the only true and living God is unlimited. If you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, then the unlimited power of God gives you hope for all the impossibilities of life. It gives you hope for the work of missions. The great religions of this world seem like Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings to us. How will the gospel ever 
penetrate the lands which lie under the darkness of Islam? How will the good news about Jesus Christ ever reach the Hindus and the Buddhists, both in our own country and throughout the world? These things could never happen if we served a limited God. But our God is unlimited. He is God of the valleys as well as the hills, God of the east as well as the west, God of the Arabs as well as the Jews. Even as we worship this morning, a group of Christians is taking a 2,000-mile trek from Europe to Jerusalem by way of Turkey. They're calling it the Reconciliation Walk. Their purpose is to retrace the steps of the Crusaders and repent for the sins of the medieval church. Their message says that the Crusaders, quote, betrayed the name of Christ by conducting themselves in a manner contrary to his wishes and character. Their message goes on to say that by lifting the cross as a symbol of warfare, the Crusaders corrupted its true meaning of reconciliation, forgiveness, and selfless love. This reconciliation walk is receiving a warm welcome among the Muslims. The leading imam or spiritual teacher in Europe has forwarded copies of this letter of reconciliation to 600 mosques all over Europe. He testifies that many Muslims have begun to examine their own sins against Christians and Jews, and they are uncertain about what to do about them. We can pray that they will take their sins to the cross of Christ. We can pray that a new day for the gospel will dawn in the darkness of Islam. We can pray that entire mosques will turn to faith in Christ because we do serve an unlimited God. The unlimited power of God gives hope for victory over sin. It may be that as this new year begins, you feel defeated by the power of sin. Perhaps you are still in bondage to alcohol or other drugs. Perhaps you are still in the grip of sexual sin. Perhaps you are enslaved by an eating disorder or some other secret sin. Perhaps you feel defeated by sin, not so much in your own life, but in the life of a friend or family member. It may even be that you have begun to doubt the victory of Jesus Christ over sin. But you see, God is God of the valleys as well as the hills. He is a God for sinners as well as for saints. He is unlimited in his power to break the power of reigning sin. You need only come to the place where you confess your total inability to live a life of perfect purity in the sight of God. You only need to confess that you are and always have been a sinner through and through, and that apart from Christ you can do nothing. And then you only need to throw yourself upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, believing in the unlimited power of God, testifying that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then the unlimited power of God gives hope for healing broken relationships. Maybe your marriage or your relationship with your children or with your parents has reached what we might call the Humpty Dumpty stage. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put it together again. But if you know Christ, then you are not dealing with the king's horses or with the king's men. You are dealing with the king himself. 
And the king himself is unlimited. He is king of the valleys as well as king of the hills. He is unlimited in his power to restore intimacy to a husband and wife or to restore fellowship between a parent and child. Not long ago, I received a letter from a woman describing the rebuilding of her marriage. Sometime before, I had heard how her marriage had reached Humpty Dumpty status, and it was a grief to me. But this letter was full of hope. The couple had realized that their own efforts to mend their own marriage on their own terms were bound to fail. And now they are beginning to discover the unlimited power of God. They are finding that he is God of the valleys as well as the hills, God of the broken marriage as well as the perfect marriage. The unlimited power of God gives hope for all the impossibilities of life, all of our spiritual troubles, all of our physical troubles, all of our troubles, whatever troubles. No matter how high the hill, God rules over that hill. No matter how deep the valley, God still rules in the valley. He is God unlimited. But I must tell you that he is also unlimited in his justice. That is the surprise ending of 1 Kings 20. In the aftermath of the battle, Ben-Hadad escaped from the Israelites and he hid in an inner room in Aphek. He feared for his life. But his advisors said, as we read in verse 31, Look, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Well, plans A and B had both failed. So Ben-Hadad's advisors had no choice but to try plan C. They went to Ahab in submission to plead for the life of Ben-Hadad. And Ahab said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Well, Ben-Hadad's officials were diplomats, and so they knew how to use Ahab's choice of words to their own advantage. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad, they said. So Ahab had pity on Ben-Hadad, and he made a deal with him. He established a treaty for the return of the cities the Syrians had taken from Israel. Then he negotiated a favorable trade policy for Israeli goods in Damascus. And then he released Ben-Hadad from captivity. Now, wasn't that shrewd diplomacy? Wasn't it so very astute of Ahab to open up a Jewish bazaar in Damascus? Wasn't it magnanimous of him to spare Ben-Hadad's life? Well, perhaps. But Ahab's actions did not please the Lord. And that is the only thing that really matters. You see, Ben-Hadad's life was forfeit because he had attacked the Lord's people and he had mocked God. Ahab should not have spared him but given him the sword This war was holy to the Lord. The victory came from God alone. And it was supposed to be like Jericho when all the plunder from the battle was devoted to the Lord. But Ahab tried to turn it all to his own advantage. 
He sacrificed a covenant principle for personal gain. He treated the victory as his own achievement, his own opportunity to secure his position and to gain in wealth. And so, like Achan, who hid the spoils of battle under his tent, Ahab brought disgrace upon all Israel. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets found a man and said, Strike me, please. I'm reading in verse 37. So the man struck him and wounded him. And then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. In the ancient Near East, prison guards were responsible to the death for their prisoners. If the prisoner escaped, then the guard who let him escape had to pay with his own life. And so it was with Ahab. The Lord handed Ben-Hadad over to him as a prisoner for judgment, but Ahab allowed him to escape, and his own life became forfeit as a result. It may be that we question in our minds the mysterious ways of God, but who can question his right to put his sworn enemies to death. Ahab tried to question that right. He tried to limit God. His God was too small. He did not understand that God is a God of justice as well as a God of mercy. He took it upon himself to extend mercy where God intended to administer justice. And if the ending of this chapter catches us by surprise... It is because somewhere deep in our hearts we believe in a limited deity. The living God is unlimited. He is God of the valleys as well as the hills, and this gives great hope to all his friends. But at the same time, it strikes fear into the heart of all his enemies. As Ahab and the Arameans discovered, an unlimited God is not to be trifled with but he is to be worshipped, and he is to be obeyed. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the difficult passages of Scripture. We thank you for them because we trust that what we find in the Scriptures is true, and it gives a true representation of your character. We give you praise this morning for the way that our understanding of your power and character has been expanded to see that you are unlimited, unlimited in your power to save us and to help us in all the troubles of life. And at the same time, we pray for the lost because we know what a fearful thing it is 
to fall into the hands of an unlimited God. We bow before you and we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>